0: Hello, hello and welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system, that's our intelligence, into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. How to install the current level of our operational excellence, even if we are not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be. When we make that level concrete and specific through visual devices and visual mini systems and systems, we can literally see how we think and we can predict how that thinking will function because we've captured it. And why do we bother? Well, first of all, we get amazing bottom line Benefits in terms of improved safety, better quality, more aligned delivery time, shrinking costs, all the KPIs. Second, splendid cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels from CEO through the boardroom to management to operators and up again. And third, we enjoy ourselves at work, we flow. The enterprise flows. The enterprise becomes increasingly conscious, you could say, increasingly self-aware, to which I say, wonderful, wonderful. So welcome. Thank you for taking time during your busy day to tune in. I hope you find our radio shows interesting and even helpful, helping you with your operational system and helping you both understand how visuality will gain financial benefits, but also create wonderful cultural outcomes. And we're going to pretty much focus on the cultural outcome, uh, one set of it, today, knowing that you have a strong work culture, you have a financially viable organization. you got to make some really big mistakes if you've got a great culture and your company is suffering financially. So much is freed up when the culture is aware, aligned, spirited, and flowing. So, today, today we're going to present the second episode in a new mini-series, which I call The Hero Within. This week's episode is called The Journey of the I, <clears throat> I, beg your the, of the, I the Power of the Will, The Power of Your Enterprise. The Journey of the I, The Power of the Will, The Power of the Enterprise. So last week we talked about the hero within that part inside of us that wants to make a contribution that wants to give give something of value that yearns to excel to be excellent in one's own eye in I beg your pardon in one's own eyes and also in the eyes of others we talked about the importance of company managers recognizing that and supporting it, cultivating it for the benefit of the company and also in support of individuals. I posed the open-ended question, what would it be like if every CEO, manager, supervisor in your company committed to a single cultural outcome of making every employee a hero in their own eyes? What would change as a result? What would have to change? What would have to change in you? Who would your company, what would your company become and who would you become? What do you have to do to do that? And might this be one of the roads to a more powerful work culture with both improvement and the individual at its core? Because we know work culture is identity's mirror. So we're going to be talking about that. The second half of that today, we're going to be talking about that identity, and this time we're doing it through the journey of the eye. You have heard me say, unless you're a newcomer, that visuality is an eye-driven improvement strategy. So we'll be talking about that. Okay? This is the second show of the series. I am planning three more. Maybe we'll go a little bit further than that. In this show, we'll look at some of the mechanics that make heroes at work a reality and a powerful part of your business case. By mechanics, I mean the principles, the practices, the concepts that underlie visual thinking, visuality, and this journey. The starting point is something I've mentioned a number of times on Visual Workplace Radio. And that is the two questions that drive workplace visuality. Question number one, what do I need to know? Question number two, what do I need to share? What do I need to know? What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? I get the answer to that. I turn the answer into a visual device. I put, implement, implant that device into the living landscape of work, and that information of what I needed to know is where and when I need it as I need it. And I pull it to me. What do I need to share? What do I know that others need to know that I need to share so they can do their work? They can do it more completely, more safely, better quality, more on time. What do I need to share I listen to other people's questions. They may not be vocalized questions. They may simply be in the form of their motion. They are moving without working. I notice it, I inquire, I answer the question that they have my need to share as completely and politely as I can and then I turn that into a visual device. So that information is embedded in the workplace, ready for that person and others to pull to them when and as they need it. Ready for me to never have to answer that question again and for them to never have to ask that question again. And we are free. As I unnest these questions during this conversation today, please bear in mind that when I say, These are the two questions that drive visuality, I mean, for everyone. No exceptions. The same two questions for operators are also the same two driving questions for CEOs, supervisors, your marketing staff, and for you, for engineers, for the office staff. The only thing that changes are the applications that result, the actual visual solutions, the devices. And the information that each of these devices captures or targets. But the mechanics are the same. And if you get that, you'll also understand the great democracy of creating a language, a visual language of operations in your company. The contributions are calibrated to our area and level of responsibility. We speak that language, period. Okay? So, I want to look at each of these questions and talk about how their use creates this evolution, this revolution, which I call the journey of the eye. This journey of the eye is, I could say it's your physical eye that sees. That certainly would be uh, logical with the visual workplace. But I'm really talking about the pronoun I, the journey of the eye as an individual, that journey that comes that moves along from, let's say, a struggling individual who is either, well, pretty upset and therefore combative and reactive or on the flip side of the coin, someone who is struggling, the struggling I, who is angry but has gone numb, who appears to be indifferent, who doesn't seem to care, those are two sides of one coin. I don't call either one of them resistant. I call it responsive. They are response, responding to the lack of information when and as they need it in the workplace. They are responding to the ton of struggle that a pre-visual workplace, an information-starved workplace, will trigger, will create. Okay. So the first question that drives, once again, is what do I need to know? What do I need to know right now that I don't know in order to do my work? In other words, what is one of or many of the missing answers that keep me from doing my work, that keeps me in struggle? One of the information deficits that prevents me from contributing prevents me from flowing, okay? So we're talking about the informational field at work. By struggle, I mean that rather pale and dreary list of busyness that can be summed up by the waste called motion moving without working, the symptom of missing information. Motion is the footprint left by an information deficit, Deficits like the motion would be like this, searching is motion, wandering is motion, wondering is motion, looking for, counting is motion, counting again is double motion, (laughs) making mistakes, rework, the list goes on and on. They're very, very common. The enemy itself is invisible. That's the real horror. An information deficit, by definition, means it isn't there. They are entirely, these information deficits, invisible. You can't see them because they are literally not there. There couldn't be more missing. (laughs) They are powerful, very powerful in their absence, but they leave a footprint, and that footprint is traceable and trackable. That footprint is called motion. The activities I named a moment ago and many, many more. Or this gang of four, I like to call it, (laughs) which is around questions. Asking questions to fill missing information. Answering questions to fill missing information. Interrupting to ask. Being interrupted to answer. Hmm? Waiting for information stopping because the information is missing. It's not there, and you cannot move forward. That's another form of motion. I can't, you can't, we're stuck, we're stalled, we're stopped. Very powerful enemy, and when you think that it's not there, you can see how fundamentally powerful information is in the workplace, that the lack of it could actually stop you stall you. You can't move, left or right. The only thing you can do is make something up. Not always such a great idea, but people, me, you, in our frustration, we'll do it. We'll make something up. We'll forge ahead. Oops, we made up the wrong thing. Now we're a little bit deeper in trouble than we were before. When I ask myself, what do I need to know? Simply asking that question represents a mighty step forward towards independence and with it a sense of control. So if you find yourself struggling during the course of the day, if you find yourself engaging in the forms of motion, they're very, very common, counting, counting again, doing again, that's called rework, asking, answering, stopping for information, searching for in- information, wandering, wondering, making stuff up, you're in motion. One of the ways to help yourself if you're defining motion, moving without working, is to also define work. What is work? Well, work is moving and adding value, converting, converting. Define work and ask yourself, where do I do that work? And you'll be setting up a little experiment that will help you notice the motion, even if it's really hard to name it precisely. When you defined your work, then take a step and define your value field, the place, the location where you add value. It's called your value field. And then make the distinction between your primary value field, which is where you really do the work, do the conversion. It could be your desk. And the secondary value fields, which are valuable supportive fields or locations, but they are not your work. It might be, for example, if you were making an assembly where you did the subassembly or where you did some special grinding after you did welding, Okay, it's secondary to your primary value field. And what you say to yourself, and this is really hard and fast, you are automatically, I am automatically in motion whenever I leave my primary value field. Even if you're going to a secondary value field, which you consider to be very valuable, it is not your primary value field, it's not where you you do the work itself. And you'll start developing a very fine understanding of the tons and tons of motion you engage in every day in the name of work. Make these definitions clean. Mm -hmm. And if you're coaching people, make it clean. You can find lots and lots of discussion about this in our online systems and in my books. They're all available on our website, visualworkplace.com. They're all available. I'm pretty sure they're all available on Amazon as well. Mm -hmm. Our website, visualworkplace.com, and lots of articles there in these podcasts. So you can get a flavor of this because once you get the tons of information deficits that are really dictating not only your flows but the behavior of your KPIs, you'll want to get acquainted with this fundamental level of what visuality is and how it works and how it creates a language. Your language is going to be in the form of visual devices and they will be triggered when you notice the motion. You create a visual device, that visual device will replace the missing information with captured information and your motion and your information deficits will evaporate simultaneously at that instant. Now, visuality is an iterative process, so you do a, a visual device once, and you may have to do it again because you'll notice some smaller forms of motion. You'll notice that it isn't all gone. Maybe 70% of it is gone, which is a huge victory, but gradually as you settle into it, you'll notice that there are more subtle forms of motion, so you strengthen your visual device we'll do oh a couple shows i think at least on the power levels of visual devices soon i'm kind of letting your emails dictate what's next when i get a bunch of questions i i look at them and say hey you know what they're mostly asking about this kind of topic um why don't i do the next few shows on that so your emails really do have an impact on our programming choices and we're doing this very organically. We have a shape in general, but the shows come in response. And if you've written into us, we've written back to you, as you know. Okay? Radio at visualworkplace.com. Okay? Radio at visualworkplace.com. Please keep them coming. So you ask yourself, what do I need to know? And that's going to take you a step forward. And then You pay attention. What do I need to know? And you look for your information deficits. Because you are a visual thinker in the making, you know that struggle is caused. It doesn't happen by accident. If you're struggling, it's caused by something that is missing from the work environment. When we talk about visuality, it's a missing answer. For example, you may be an operator struggling to find a special pair of pliers, needle nose, orange handle. You may, in your role as controller, be missing answers about performance, data performance or payments. There's a hole in the fabric of your thinking and of your decision-making. You have an information deficit. You're stuck, you're stalled, you're stopped. Both of you are visual thinkers in the making. Both of you are hunting down your Information deficits by noticing your motion. Henry, the first gentleman looking for his needle-nose pliers orange handle, he needed to know where his pliers were in order to do his work. He is in motion in order to find his pliers. As a visual thinker in the making, he will find what he's missing and then he will decide. Where do I want to find my pliers the next time I need them? Ah, I want to find them here. Might be in the upper left hand corner, upper right hand corner of his bench, might be hanging on the wall. I decide. I build it a home visual wear, border, address, and certainly an ID label on the pliers themselves, this exact spot, there it is. And what I get the next day when I come in and the pliers aren't there, I know they are missing. I don't have to hesitate a second. If they're not in their home, they are gone, as good as gone. Doesn't matter if they're just next door or Susie borrowed them down the road, they're not in place. Mm-hmm. And that clarity is clarity that you pre-designed, in. it's the same thing with the controllers, with a controller looking for his information, his performance information, his payment reports. I want the data here, she says. The next time I need it, I'll create a visual device and find a placement for it. I create a visual solution, a visual answer, the Answer to the question becomes embedded into the living landscape of work. The answer resides. It has a home in the physical work environment. And that is the start of an eye driven visual environment, a workplace that speaks. And soon afterwards, an enterprise that speaks. So we start building this eye by eye. Individual by individual. Let me just go on a small detour and say to you it's really important that you understand that what I'm giving you here are principles of thinking, the two driving questions I driven, motion, work, information deficits. This is not methodology. It is the ingredients of a methodology. The methodology actually gives you the procedure for combing through and taking care of all your first-level information deficits, all your first-level need-to-know, next-level need-to-know, third-level need-to-know, and then moving over to your need-to-share, first-level, second-level, third-level. So I'm not teaching methodology. I'll spend plenty of our episodes on methodology until it comes out of your ears, until your teeth ache. (laughs) But right now it's conceptual because I want to talk about the hero within and I want to let you know that when you liberate information, you liberate the human will and there is no hero who does not have an experience of his will. In fact, the utilization of that will is what makes him a hero, what makes her a hero, right? Exceptional, who made choices at a time of great pressure and great need to move forward bravely and clearly, okay? So, that's the way it works. Let me kind of get back on my trail again. So. If this seems mechanical, it is. These are building, I don't want to use the word building blocks, but these are the elements of becoming a visual thinker. This is what you look for. In the workplace, these trigger very ordinary, very plain actions, putting a border around a pair of pliers, wow. The impact, though, is mighty. And then you do it in its multiples. And it becomes more and more powerful. But what I want to talk to you about is what happens to the person on the inside. Because this is where truly, if you want to call it magic, this is where the power is. What happens to you when you do that on the inside? Well... On the outside, the physical workplace becomes more orderly, more knowable, more efficient, more transparent. You lay down the pattern of work, for example, if we're talking on the operator level. And on the inside, it is even more spectacular. What is the impact for you on the inside? Huge, huge because just as visual devices in their multiples, meaning hundreds, even thousands of visual devices, can have a powerful impact on the company's business case, visuality has a parallel impact on each of us individually on the inside when done in multiples, in depth. And what is that impact? We come up, we grow, we grow. No one's ever born a hero. We grow into that. When we liberate information beginning so modestly, as in the form of borders and addresses around our pliers and around our material, around our gauges and fixtures, when we liberate information in the form of these plain visual devices, we liberate the human will. Said another way, we begin to get connected on the inside. We begin to enter the internal landscape of our lives, which is inside of us. We get to know it. It becomes accessible to us. We enter it. We grow. We grow. In the application of the first driving questions, question, what do I need to know? We actively, even proactively, reduce the struggle in our day, and we get in return, a marvelous outcome. We get control of our corner of the world. We gain control. It's just our corner, and it may be just ours for eight hours. And yes, we have to negotiate with the other two shifts or sometimes three shifts so that the workplace speaks to others as well. That's part of the methodology, and believe me, People will allow it. They will allow their idea and your idea to live side by side. We'll do a show that on the prototype model, it's a way of dealing, very, dealing with very complex um, operations where you can have four or five shifts, and it can be totally shared, common, commonly shared work areas. Or lay, lay, lay one complication on top of another where you don't, there's nothing to call your own, it's all shared. But there's a way of making that visually extremely robust, really showcase level, and still everyone will feel quite in balance. You won't have to vote, you won't have to dive into the lowest common denominator to get everyone to say yes, nonsense. It's going to be a powerful transformation, better be a powerful outcome physically, and that is showcase level visuality. So as we gain control through visuality over the order and performance of our corner of the world, something happens on the inside that is parallel, and that is we relax on the inside, on the inside. As humans, we have a built-in partiality, a preference in favor of growth. We can't stop it. That is our bias. That is our bent. But the struggles in our day can keep us under so much pressure that we can't grow. In fact, that pressure keeps us small. That pressure creates the antithesis, the opposite of growth. Compression, we implode or we explode. We implode and become indifferent. It's just too much. I cut myself off or I explode. I strike out. I become combative. There's just too much. Now, I know what you know, that high pressure can and often does produce great growth in spurts or throughout a lifetime. Challenges, especially huge ones, can can and often do trigger great growth. We see this in times of war. Sometimes shockingly, that people come up, they overcome, they're victorious. Even in a war, they are losing, they're personally, they've grown. This, also, this is the case of Helen Keller. She wasn't concerned about what her hair looked like or whether her cheekbones were good or not good. She had larger challenges to tackle, mountains to climb. And she did so fiercely. Her battle was on the inside, and she won that battle and became an inspiration to the rest of us. Iconic, heroic. Her need was so great and unrelenting that it changed her entirely. You read about the life of Helen Keller, blind, mute, couldn't speak, Couldn't see. All she could do was touch. Hmm? She found her way. I am not, so I'm not talking about these gargantuan, heroic lives and the struggles that some individuals are born into and rise above. The monumental lives, the inspirational lives of overcoming. It's a long list, make it. But I'm talking about... Struggle in the workplace that simply grinds us down. Its power is that, or its force is that it's so small, it's minuscule and unrelenting. It barely has a face or a rhyme or a reason. It's a ty- type of struggle that we barely notice. We're not motivated to rise up and conquer it. It just grinds us down. It is corrosive. It erodes. We are weakened like a frog in warm water that doesn't notice that the water is coming to a boil because it is continually making these tiny internal (laughs) adjustments. Poor little froggy. Adjustments to the heat until one minute it's cooked. It's cooked. We're sort of like that at work when little things niggle at us tiny bites, tiny bites, tiny bites. This is what wears us down, we become compressed. We cannot find rhyme or reason, and it happens and it happens in so many ways. We finally just walk a very narrow path. I see this. When I begin an implementation, I see this. And one great force that keeps me going is a determination inside of myself that I must help this change. And I know I can do this through visuality in a way that does not corrupt or interrupt or override the individual. We just take small steps, small steps, and they become, because they become consistent and always forward-moving, we cover a big difference. And that's that's the driving question. The first driving question, what do I need to know? We begin wherever we begin. We simply begin there. Our focal point is the thing that's eating our lunch that we most want to change, and we do that first. And we say, what do we need to know? I need to know where my pliers are. How many times have people laughed at me when I said, this great change that you've asked me to help you with begins with that first question. I need to know where my pliers are, and you build from there. And what happens is that as that person begins to answer those questions and creates visual devices so that the question never has to be asked again, as this happens day by day, day by day, something inside of us relaxes. This is the mechanics of it. This is the mechanics of making heroes, Let them relax a little bit, just a little bit, because they have gained just a little bit of relief, a little bit of control, a little bit more flow. And the bite has been taken out of the daily struggle, a little bit. Motion begins to recede, and when it does, something inside of us that wants to grow, it's there already, does grow. I relax, and it has a little bit of room, a little bit of margin. And into that space, it grows. Little bit of space, it grows. I often think of the mushroom. I know I've spoken to you about this before. The mushroom that you might find on a summer's day as you're walking along the road, hot asphalt. And in the shade, you'll see this mushroom pushing its head with this little green leaf Pushing its way through the asphalt, which is fairly porous. But the mushroom finds its way. And sometimes you go on to Google and you'll see these little mushrooms with a little cap of asphalt sitting on its head. Because the growth had to happen, and the asphalt was giving enough for the power of the growth, which is the power of stars for heaven's sakes. This is a cosmic power, cosmic strength, has pushed through. This mushroom, which you can you can deteriorate, turn into mush with your fingers, has pushed its way up through the asphalt because of its will, its will to grow. Imagine us. So that relaxation that we get when we gain a little bit of control of our... Of our corner of the world is the key, is what we're looking for, and is the mercy, is the grace. We, we, We got a little bit relaxed because the struggle has gone down a little bit. And in that relaxation, in that tiny space that appears in our otherwise cluttered mind and compressed heart, we grow. Just a little bit of room. We do what is as natural as breathing. We shift, we change, we become more. We become us. Hmm? Bob Miller, who is the former director of the Shingo Prize, was an early and great fan of my work, of workplace visuality. And he would say, Visuality doesn't just support a, a lean work culture, it creates one. This is what he was talking about. A very astute man. <laughs> He was referring to the hundreds and thousands of devices, the multiples of what I just described, with each individual saying quietly, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, just enough, just enough, times a hundred, times a thousand And what do you get? A spirited and engaged workforce. A workforce of thinkers. Ono said it. People don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think. It is natural. You get thinkers, a workforce of thinkers, multiples, and a workforce of self-leaders because the I drives. And people begin to develop this relationship with themselves or before it was blocked by the compression of the struggle. This is not really a byproduct of visuality. It is one of its enormous outcomes. It is built to do this. You know... I started Visuality in 1984, 85, and I've been developing and watching it. It's been teaching me, and it's been showing me. You give people language, and that language enables them to dig and connect, and they become leaders, self-leaders, contributors. Hmm? The recreation of the individual through a flood of practical, relevant powerful visual devices that anchor and power your operational system, whether you're in healthcare, factory, military depot, office agency, open pit mine, does it matter? Mm. When you create visual devices, you recreate the work culture. It's pretty amazing, but this is it. I'm working with a group right now. I'm starting another one in about a month. After two and a half years with the first group, I, we're finally – steady, and glorious, and I can take on another one. I love my work. The journey of the I, which is what we're talking about this week, begins by asking and answering the first of the two driving questions, what do I need to know? And doing that, answering that iteratively until enough control is reached, that the individual is satisfied. And what that person says is, I'm in control. I'm in control of my corner of the world. It may only be for eight hours, five days a week, but I'm in control. Rick L. created what he considered to be the no-thinking cell. People came and they did the dance of work. I have to say, without, without, I hope not sounding harsh, but the Kazan Blitz is not geared to do this. It is not geared to promote the individual, no matter which individual, every individual. It is not made to bring democracy and creativity to a disempowered workforce. You have heard me say this before. Mother Toyota, where the Kazan Blitz was came from, never used the Kaizen Blitz, any kind of Blitz. They had an event called Five Days and Four Nights, and they used that for their supply chain. But they would never bring that into the mothership because it was antithetical to their belief about individuals and their care of the people who work directly for Toyota. But they did it in the supply chain. They were much less polite, much less careful with that group. They did not cultivate. They went in and they got 20 or 30%, whichever whichever they needed, and they had 5 days and 4 nights to do it in, and it was pretty unforgiving and pretty pretty direct. It wasn't graceful. Wonderful wonderful man, Iwata, and he was his colleagues were Nakao and Uh, Ubu. But they were called the thugs of the Toyota production system. Let me spell that word for you. T-H-U-G-S. The thugs. They knew it. They needed to get out there and make things happen. (laughs) And they had five days and four nights to do it in. And eventually it was called the Kaizen Blitz. Funny. Those two words together, Kaizen Blitz. Kaizen means gradual, and Blitz means as fast as possible. And in fact, the word Kaizen comes from The ancient, ancient Japanese kaizen, and it means the journey to God. That's the way, way back origins of kaizen, the journey to God, which has to be continuous, and it has to be slow. You just make the incremental. You do it bit by bit, part by part, bit by bit, forward, forward, little by little, kaizen. Kaizen Blitz, ah, we Americans are so clever with language. <laughs> I love my country. The Kaizen Blitz came on as an easy fix to bring democracy and creativity to a disempowered workforce, and it worked a little. It was better than no creativity creativity I beg your pardon, creativity at all. But there wasn't much opportunity to think. And it was for a rather small section. Where is the company that will do blitzes and make sure that everyone gets involved? Instead, they kind of develop, as you know, a kind of elite, and there's a new imbalance introduced into the work culture. But it was a step forward, however short, and in most companies, Kaizen blitzes are the shorthand way to claim that you promote employee empowerment, but it really is not a, a substitute for it. It really doesn't do a great job on empowerment. It a, does a good job in getting things to change. But we're not, But those companies are not utilizing the process of that change to grow people and to have a harvest. But I don't blame you, especially if you don't know about workplace visuality. So you get results, and they look useful, and they are. But so much more is possible. And how can you blame anybody for missing that more is possible when they think they have enough? So anyway, it'll move along by itself. But Ono said it very elegantly. People don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think, and he made it so. Visuality is a language, and as a language, it is held in common. Every language is held in common. That's, you can put border, pencils, of Uh, magic markers are on the map around around languages that are the same and you almost always have then a country. Every employee owns a language in a visual workplace and contributes to it by using it and by inventing new words, which are new devices. The journey of the eye is the journey of your ever-strengthening operational system. Co-terminous with that eye, that developing eye. Operators pay attention to their corner of the world. They learn to define and control it through de- visual devices to maximize it, <laughs> to optimize it, visual best practices, visual showcases. And you focus on your corner of the world. If you're a supervisor, engineer, CEO, it's the same. Your devices are different but they still capture and hold your need to know and your need to share. So I want to move on to just another commentary. I, I want to, I, I kind of think, I, I'm not sure I'll do a whole show on, on the need to share, but I want to make sure to anchor this eye-driven part with the need to know, the first question. Companies need a way to remedy the eye that struggles because this struggling eye populates the workforce if the company has not yet gone through a cultural transformation this is both on an associate operator level and a manager a manager level i've met so many supervisors and managers who are seeking a new way but they don't know how to frame it they just are may I say, tired of feeling like they're victims of the system, tired of feeling powerless to change it. I'm not talking about a big initiative. I'm talking about eye-driven change. And you know what? In such a company, certainly line employees are not yet ready for teams, not yet ready to pursue improvement as a, as a group. When the work culture needs a major overhaul, you have to look for ways that allow people to, do, to ease into an improvement frame of mind. Evolution works in this case, not revolution, even though the results when they come through visuality are often deemed revolutionary. No kaizen blitzes for the moment, please. No requirement for the workforce to march together single purpose to a greater tomorrow. The divisiveness that is a byproduct of a fragmented work culture does not convert into alignment. Maybe you want to use the word unity overnight. I love the word unity. It can't be scheduled out of existence or bullied into oneness. The I is the starting point, and that I is you, and that I is me, and that I is the other This is the work culture on its atomic level, where it can be divided no further. This is the level of wholeness. The I exists on the level of the will. That is the location in each of us of our last output, the will. Each of us is in charge of our will. It's more than that. More than that, the outside can get close, very close, very close to me. Other people may presume or even appropriate parts of me, my hands, my feet, my brain, even my heart, but not my will. At some point, they stop and I begin and that's me. That point is the point of my will, the boundary line, that secret place that is my own. This is where plans are hatched. To create escape routes for the rest of me, to get my hands, my feet, my brain, my heart out of here. The will is the place where I am in charge and where I do the plotting. (laughs) It is the place of decision, intention, and knowing it is a place of power. Without the will's agreement, personal progress is fraught with difficulty. With it, great things are possible. Without the alignment of the personal will, with the corporate intent, no company can reach the full promise of excellence. With it, the organization becomes unified, aligned, and ready to tackle day-to-day and long-range challenges armed. Full potential. The will is the powerhouse of the I. That's what I'm talking about, the journey of the I, the journey of the will. When you liberate information, you liberate the human will. Each person has one. And it is this that we seek to resuscitate and rehabilitate when we decide to align the work culture with excellence. When in workplace visuality, for example, we ask individuals to install the simple formula of the visual wear, border, address, ID label. When we do, we empower them to make a mighty change in their immediate work environment. One that will benefit them, tangibly and intangibly. Not everyone agrees to do this at first. This is what else, if you're eye-driven, at the early stages, eye-driven gives people back the right to decide if they will get on board, if they will get on board or not. We allow them. We ask them to show us their stripes, as it were. We permit them to do or not to do. Based on their own inner calling, many refuse Others watch. We say, here's our our guideline. It's not a guideline. This is in stone. Attendance is mandatory. Participation is voluntary. Attendance is mandatory. Participation is voluntary. Participation is always voluntary because I'm in charge of my own will. And I'll show up, my hands, my feet, my head. I'll be dressed. I'll be clean. But you know what? Even if I do, I'm not going to do with all of me. We permit people to calibrate, and a few don't get on board. Responding to their own internal will, they cut a swath of improvement through the landscape when they are ready, and if they are ready, that can be dazzling. These are our grumblers. When they decide, yes, they are unstoppable, the results are often amazing, going far beyond the simple protocol of visual order that others engage. They explode into unique visual solutions of unsurpassed usefulness and invention in allowing people to participate as they are inspired to do so or not to participate. We get to see who people really are without the constant surveillance and prodding of our idea of what a good employee is. Remember, the whole journey is about identity. Culture is identity's mirror. That's what you have to allow people to see themselves. Each person will march to their own drummer. And in some cases, that just happens to be yours as well. Go slow, let the eye drive. People have to find their eye first. They have to find it. This is what's beautiful. You're still going to get benefits. And so many people will say yes. So many people. I want to close with reading a poem, and I've been struggling. I struggled before and getting rid of whether or not I'll read this poem or that poem. I think maybe I'll try to squeeze two of them in. One of them is by Rilke. Rene Maria Rilke, a great poet of the 19th century, and this is called The Man Watching. It's a complicated poem, but I love it, so just bear with it. I'll read it twice. Just listen. I think it's relevant to this because it talks about power and how we long for a greater calling, and we often miss it. I can tell, the the man watching, I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my worried window panes that a storm is coming. And I hear the far-off fields say things that I can't bear without a friend and I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in a psalm book, is seriousness and weight and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. I mean the angel who appeared to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. When the wrestlers' sinews grew long like metal strings, he, the angel, felt them under his fingers like chords of deep music. Whoever was beaten by this angel who often simply declined the fight went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man, this is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Winning does not tempt this man, this is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. One of the joys and revelations of my work is to see people come up. My mechanism, the one that I've been given, that I give to others, is visuality. Visuality that allows people to find their way. I am completely confident in the creativity of the individual who says yes. But I can't make them say yes. But I know if I give them the need to know, and they begin, as they often do, to find their equivalence, find their language, by, by keeping track of their motion. they will They will come up. They will grow. So it's been great. We'll pick this up next time. I'll figure out a good topic. I think I'm pretty sure what I want to do next. I want to thank you very much for listening in. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off, and I say, let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.